Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Extremely Awesome Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Today, you guys are stuck with me, and only me, uh, because we are having technical issues, um, and I could not get my co-host to go in with me today. Uh, Normally, on the weekends, one of my co-hosts, Thunder, like the, he hangs out with me on the weekends. Well, we are having a scheduling shift at work. Uh, we are dropping a day at work, and uh, we're being moved to Monday through Friday, so he's not hanging out with me today. And and uh, the the app is just not... It's just not working today, so no thunder, no the breeze. You guys are stuck with me today. Darn. <laughs> well, anyways, let's do part three or three of the three-part series of NHL teams on the road. Let's start with the Philadelphia Flyers. Madison Square Garden, the fourth incarnation. That's like their best arena on on the road. And those who listened to the last week's episode, you heard the New York Islanders is the best in that arena as well. Um, however, the Philadelphia Flyers uh, record is 60 wins, 69 losses. Uh, Pittsburgh Penguins, same place. Madison Square Garden, fourth incarnation. And their win-loss record is 63 wins, 67 losses. So, roughly almost the same as the uh, Philadelphia Flyers. Uh, San Jose Sharks. The Honda Center is their best arena on the road. 41 wins, 27 losses. That is the uh, home of the the uh, Anaheim Ducks, but I don't think that is actually called the Honda Center anymore. I could be wrong. I think it's actually called something else now. Um, the Seattle Kraken, they're having a good year this year. Um, they're like their best. Arena on the road is crypto.com arena. Yes, and like those who just said that's a stupid name for arena, I agree. It's very, very stupid. Uh, they couldn't just uh, say like crypto arena, no, it has to be crypto.com, but I digress. Uh, their best arena, you got to understand, Seattle Kraken is a, is like the newest team. So their best arena on the road is Crypto.com Arena at three wins, one loss, which is pretty good. I believe that's a home of the Los Angeles Kings. And... And it used to be called the Staples Center, which was better than 
what it is now. Um, the St. Louis Blues best arena on the road is the former home of the Detroit Red Wings, Joe Louis Arena, at 41 wins, 54 losses. Um, the Tampa Bay Lightning is next up on the list, and they are the and their best arena is the home of their state rivals, Florida Panthers, which is called the FLA Live Arena. Not too crazy about that name either, to be honest with you, but that arena, the record is. 26 wins, 29 losses, so almost 50-50 there. Uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, fun little side fact. Uh, when I was younger, I used to call the Toronto Maple Leafs the Toronto Maple Leafs. And nobody ever corrected me. And for many years, I actually thought it was a Toronto make-believes, not the Maple Leafs. I mean, I wasn't, like, intentionally making fun of them. But when I was little, that's what I thought they were called, and nobody ever corrected me. Why did nobody ever correct me? I have no idea, but nobody ever did. Um, well, anyways... On that side fact, like after that side fact, um, their best arena is Madison Square Garden, the third incarnation of it. Apparently, they had several incarnations of it, which I'm not surprised because it is one of the oldest uh, arenas, to my knowledge, in the United States. And their win-loss record there is 106 wins. 110 losses, so almost 50-50 there as well. Um, the Vancouver Canucks Best Arena is the Scotiabank Saladome, home of the Calgary Flames, at 42 wins, 65 losses, which isn't, isn't too bad. Uh, Vegas Golden Knights, the SAP Center at San Jose is their best arena. And I actually had to include overtime losses of this be like of this statistic because uh the Vegas Golden Knights has yet to be defeated in regulation time in San Jose. They got 10 wins in San Jose, 0 losses, and 2 overtime losses. Which I thought was amazing that they have yet to be defeated in San Jose in regulation. The only 2 losses that they lost was in overtime, which I think is just incredible in itself. That just shows you what good of a team the Vegas Golden Knights really is, and how they still are a pretty good team. Alright, the Washington Capitals is next up on the list. And their best arena 
is Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum, which I believe was in Brooklyn. So the home of the Islanders. But I don't think it's... No, I think the one in Brooklyn was Barclays Center. But I know it was the home of the Islanders. Uh, Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum. I don't know if it's the current home, but I know at one point that arena housed that team. And that's at 52 wins, 50 losses. So nearly 50-50 there as well. And the very last on the list, the Winnipeg Jets. And that too has, like, their best arena is at FLA Live Arena at 23 wins, 19 losses. Yeah, I hope you guys, like, found that interesting because I know I did. That was just some like cool fun facts up for like for you about what the team like what team is best on the road. Let me know what you guys think of the series. If it was like if you guys liked it or not, let me like let me know what you like your opinion on it on Twitter. Uh, True Social, email me. I would love to hear from you if you guys liked it. Uh, who knows? Maybe I'll do. Maybe I'll bring something like this back instead of like the best arena that they play at. Would you guys be interested in hearing the worst arena that they that they play at? Like what? Which team that they might? actually dread going to because they are not good at that arena for whatever reason. Um, let me know. So, I think that being said, let's get into a sponsor. Carefree Merch. If you haven't heard of them, you soon will. I wear them. They are super soft, super comfortable. I'm a multiple like customer of them. I was also their very first customer as well. They they got t-shirts for outdoor lovers to patriotic tees with more products soon to come. Like hoodies just launched not too long ago last week. Mugs pillowcases, and so much more are on the way. They like, All their products are made in the USA, so if you like supporting small businesses and also want to support America, then look no further than Carefree Merch. The website is carefreemerch.myshopify.com. That is carefree. All traditional spelling, C-A-R-E-F-R-E-E-M-E-R-C-H dot myshopify dot com. The website will be in my bio link that I always post in the description. Thank you very much 
for Carefree Merch for sponsoring the podcast. All right, moving on. I haven't done this in, in a little while. Um, and so I wanted to bring it back since I'm doing it by myself. Odd news. Funny stories. Like, um, the site that I go to is UPI forward slash odd underscore news. Um, I thought they do some, they have some pretty funny stories. Oh man, this, <laughs> this sounds funny already. Two pigs, one goat. On the loose in Illinois County. <laughs> I'm laughing already. I haven't even read the dang thing yet. Um, on March 10th, animal rescuers are helping authorities in Illinois County hunt for an unusual tri- a trio of fugitives. Two pot belly pigs and a goat. <laughs> The Grundy County Sheriff's Office said animal control officers are searching for the two pigs named Bonnie and Clyde by searchers. <laughs> the Sheriff's Office asked anyone who spot the like poor slime fugitives to report their locations rather than attempt to capture them. The Chicagoland Pig Rescue, which is assisting with the search, said the pigs are believed to have been wandering the area for about a month. They are definitely not wild pigs and were most likely dumped by the former owners, which again, we have seen an increase of unfortunately, Phoebe Connor, co-director of the Chicago Lamb Pig Rescue, told the Morris Herald News, the pig rescue is also helping animal control officers track down a goat spotted wandering loose in the area in recent days. The pigs were last seen in the Mason area while the goat was last seen outside of Kinsman. Uh, who knows? Well, maybe the uh, goat they wanted to see uh, Bonnie and Clyde. They're not hurting anybody. What the heck? They're just out for a stroll, you know? I mean, if they're not hurting anybody, then why, like, what's the harm? I mean, I guess the harm would be um, that since these are not wild uh, pigs, like, they would not be able to really fend for themselves as far as, like, getting food goes. I don't know. I just thought that story was funny. Now, continuing on with the Irish Heritage History Month, 
for that segment. Let's start off with JFK. Let me copy the link here. And paste. Here we go. From the Irish uh, Central, JFK Strong Irish Roots in Limerick, uh, Fermenga, Cork, and Clare. So, JFK has roots all over Ireland, not just in Wexford, as was thought back in the 1960s. Oh, okay, that's interesting. For a point of reference, uh, folks, we do not typically read these ahead of time to get more of a, genu a genuine reaction here. Um, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy visited Ireland, his ancestral home, in 1963, assuming that his family had mostly come from Co-Wexford, but research in 2018 showed that JFK had links to many, un many other Irish counties as well. The president's family tree, however, indicates that he has most links to County Limerick, but ha also has connections to Limerick, Clare, Cork and Birmingham. Uh, again, if I'm sorry, if if I'm butchering that name, please forgive me. I've been to Ireland once, and I don't think I've actually visited that that particular county. I know I visited County Cork. I know that. As research from Ancestry.com shed light. Um, back in 2018, Russell James, a spokesperson for Ancestry Ireland, commented on how there is a great deal of discussion and research still going on about JFK's roots. President John F. Kennedy's family history has been a much-discussed topic over the years with his Irish roots, being something that was extremely important to uh, to him and myself included. I like you people know how I am very proud of my Irish roots. Traditionally, JFK heritage has been closely linked with Wexford, but we're delighted to find records on ancestry. Which, which showed he had strong links to other counties across Ireland, James said. These findings will hopefully allow counties across Ireland to further celebrate the life of the former American president on the 55th anniversary of his visit to Ireland. Uh, this article was was on October twenty first, twenty twenty two. So, 
I guess that was why when he visited Ireland. Which is interesting itself. Uh, Limerick as opposed to Wexford had the most numbers of Kennedy's great grandparents with three in total from his mother's side, Marianne Fitzgerald, Michael Hannon, and Thomas uh, Fitz, uh, Fitzgerald. The Fitzgeralds had come from a small town called Bruh in the eastern part of Limerick. But Hannon had came from had come from I'm sorry guys, I use past tense. Uh Lowgar. His great grandfather Thomas Fitzgerald immigrated to the United States in the midst of the Irish famine of the eighteen forty two and eventually eventually settled in Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, I did not know that. His Wexford connection is not as strong given that only two of his great grandparents come from that county. They were Patrick Kennedy of Dugantown, like Dugantown, and Bridget Murphy from Owendorf. Patrick, when he arrived to the United States in April 1849, was found to be a minor, as shown on his American naturalization papers, and had become a citizen three years later. He worked as a cooper in Boston until he almost died and until he died almost 10 years later in 1858. JFK had visited Duggantown because his relatives had shared the Kennedy name there but ultimately his roots lies deeper in Limerick through his mother's side. The rest of his great-grandparents are all over Ireland, with James Hickey from Newcastle upon Fergus County, Claire, see Margaret M. Field from Roscarberry, Cork, and Rosa Anna Cox from Tomrigan in County Framlinga. Every one of them, though, had eventually immigrated and settled in Massachusetts. On Wednesday, June 26, 1963, Kennedy arrived in Ireland, but on the second day, he made the journey to his ancestral home in Wexford. While he spent time with his relatives there and gave speeches in the surrounding areas, while there, America's first Irish Catholic president took a trip to Duggantown, Wexford, where he m met his extended family at the Kennedy's 
homestead. It was there he made a toast to all the candies who went and stayed. Who went and those candies who stayed. The homestead now a visited a visitor center is where his great grandfather lived and is still maintained by the current Kennedy family. This land itself was included in a land survey of Wexford in 1853, which shows that John F. Kennedy, the two-time great-uncle, occupied the property described as having a house, offices, and land. Yeah, there's a lot of fun facts about in just that article. Um, a lot of it I actually did not know. Um, I am planning on going back to Ireland someday, and I want to make this a point that I'm going to do. I will be right back, guys. Because I'm recording on my uh, desktop, and the desktop version only require like only lets me do thirty minutes max. So I will be right back. And we're back. Sorry about that, folks. Okay, the next person on the list is Henry Ford. And this article is from October 1st, 2022. Henry Ford's son of an Irish immigrant launches the Ford Model T. Henry Ford, it, the maker of the Model T and the man behind the development of the assembly line technique of mass production, had strong Irish links. I think a lot of people know that. Henry Ford, whose father was born in County Cork, famously debuted his Model T car on October 1st, 1908. Here a, a, like here a look at the American inventor's strong Irish roots. Henry Ford, the maker of the Model T, and the man behind the development of the assembly line of mass production, had strong Irish links so much so that in 2015 his ancestral home in Ballinas Carthy in West Cork opened to the public following a three year 20,000 pound no, I'm sorry, not pound, euro, which is uh, $22,000 in U.S. renovation project. Henry Ford's grandfather, gr grandfather, great-great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather were born in the traditional stone-built single-story cottage which is believed to date back from the 1700s. 
The four-room dwelling was depicted, uh, I'm sorry, not depicted, dilapidated and ruthless with walls severely damaged by heavy rain until Ford's descendants, the descendant and farmer Vivian Budimer and his, and his family set about they set about renovating it a few years ago. Budimer farms two hundred acres at what is now officially known as Ford Farm at Balance McCarthy. Uh, Henry Ford's grandfather, great great grandfather, and great grandfather were all born on this farm, he said at one time. The connection goes back to the early 1700s when Thomas Ford and his brothers arrived as tenants, farmers in West Cork from Somerset, England. They started with 44 acres acre farm which extended over the century to 200 acres. Now, if you guys feel like I am repeating myself, uh, please forgive me because I am just reading the article at verbatim and it tends like it's uh, repeating itself a lot in, with certain words. Henry's for, like, Henry Ford's father was not born on the farm, at, but at Madame, a village near uh, Ballard and uh, McCarthy, during the famine in 1847, John and his wife, uh, Thomasine, like Thomasine? And their twenty-one-year-old son William immigrated to immigrated to the U.S. Thomas Sine died on the voyage. William was Henry's father. Henry Ford was proud of his Irish roots, and he invested heavily in Ireland during the first half of the last century. Almost a hundred years ago, he opened. An assembly plant in County Cork, which is, which in the in peak times uh, employed seven thousand workers, making Ford the largest employer in Ireland. The plant was open for some seventy years until the nineteen eighties, when its production was moved. To another Ford facility in England. Wow, a lot of fun facts there as well. Let me go know what you guys think. Um, which one was more interesting to you, Henry Ford's or JFK story? Both of them seem pretty interesting. But I got one more story I would like to read to you all. And that is about Bram Stoker. 
For those who don't know who Bram Stoker is, he is best known for inventing Dracula. And here is 11 enlightening facts about Bram Stoker. Number one, Bram Stoker was a sickly child. Abraham Stoker, a.k.a. Bram, was born in 1847 in Le Contar, a coastal suburb of Dublin, Ireland. He was the third of seven children in his family, was comfortably middle class, but Stoker had a challenging start to his life. Stricken by a severe yet unexplained illness, he was confirmed to be bed to bed. No, I'm sorry, not confirmed. Confined to bed during the early years of his childhood, till it was about seven years old. The author later wrote, "I never knew." what it was to stand upright. So I was seven years old. Wow. So he was in he was uh, mostly bedridden until he was seven. Number two, Bram Stoker became a star college athlete. Despite his mysterious childhood um mal- uh, lady. Stoker grew to become a tall and robust young adult. He enrolled in Trinity like, County, like the Trinity College, Dublin, in 1864. And while he was just an average student, he excelled at a busy roster of activities. Particularly athletic ones, Stoker joined the college rugby team and participated in high and long jump, gymnastics, trapeze, and rowing. Among other pursuits, he won prizes for weightlifting and endurance walking and was crowned Dublin University Athlete Sports Champion in 1867. Looking back on his university days, Stoker recalled being physically immensely strong. Number three, while at university, Bram Stoker worked in Dublin Castle. Stoker uh, entered the civil service while he was uh, still a student at Trinity College. He landed a job at Dublin Castle following his, the footsteps the of his father, who worked in the historical, like the historic building as a clerk in the British administration. Stoker was eventually promoted to become Inspector of Petty Sessions giving him oversight of magistrate's courts, his first 
published book was in fact a manual for service a civil servant titled The Duties of Clerk of Petty Sessions in Ireland. By Stoker's own admission, the book was as dry as dust. Wow, so even Bram Stoker didn't even like that book, and he wrote it. Um, I don't know if I have time to go through all 11 of these. Bram Stoker, this is number four, by the way, during civil uh, servant days, he also was a manager for a former actor, a famous actor. Stoker began moonlighting as an unpaid theater critic <coughs> excuse me, for Dublin Evening Mail. A fan of, of the theater, Stoker had dis been dismayed with the drama coverage in Dublin's newspapers, which often assigned reviews to staff reporters with no theater expertise. He offered his service to the owner of the mail, and when he was told that there was no money for new critics, he volunteered to work like, to write his reviews for free. It was through like this role that Stoker met his thespian idol, the formidable Victorian actor Sir Henry Irving, making the marking the start of one of the most important relationships in the author's life. Soul had looked into Soul. Stoker wrote of his first encounter from that hour, began a friendship as profound, as close, as lasting one can be between two men. Impressed by Stoker's business sense and flattered by his uh, admiration, Irving invited Stoker to work as his manager. It was all-consuming job. Stoker organized Irving's tour um, abroad, co-hosted his dinner parties, and answered his letters. More than a half a million of them, by Stoker estimations. He was also oversight, oversaw the operations of Irving's London Theatre, the Ly Lyceum? Lyceum. Through Stoker enjoyed modest success in his author. During his lifetime, he was primarily known as Irving's right-hand man upon Stoker's death in 1912. The New York Times attributed much of Irving's success to him.
Okay. Um, okay. I'll do a couple more up to six here. Uh, number five. It took Bram Stoker seven years to write Dracula. Stoker reportedly liked to say that that the version of his iconic bloodsucker came to him in a nightmare, following a two generous helping of dressed crab at supper, while his author's notes suggest that some elements of the plot may have indeed originated from a dream. He was also consulted a wide range of sources while preparing to write Dracula, from books on legends and superstitions to natural history texts to travelogues, a holiday in seaside resort of Whitby provided a color of, of his character's backstories. He never visited Transylvania, the historic Romanian region where Dracula famously resides. So he actually never even visited Transylvania. Wow. Stoker ultimately spent seven years researching and writing his novel, struggling through the overlord of his own imaginative clutter, his crisis of confidence in the, in the narrative according to his biographer, David J. Skull. He had second, even third thoughts about almost everything, Skull wrote. In, his, in the end, he wondered the book would even be remembered. So the question is, yes, it was remembered. Dracula is very, very revered to this day. That like, it ended. Would it be remembered? I added the parts after that. Yes, and like, definitely it was remembered. Number six, which is going to be the last one. Dracula was almost named Count Wammermeyer, which I am glad that it wasn't because Dracula just sounds cooler and more terrifying. Stoker notes for Dracula revealed that he originally planned to give his Dastardly Vampire, a rather odd-on-the-nose name, Count Wammeyer. But he seemed to have changed his mind after reading an account of the principalities of Wallachia and Modbia. A survey of two Roman providence, Stoker borrowed the book from a public library in the summer of 1890 and copied 
a telling foot a footnote into his papers, adding his own capitalizations in emphasis. Dracula. In well, in Wallachian language means devil. At some point, Stoker went back to his notes and in various places crossed out Wammeyer and wrote in Dracula. The new name also to have made an impression on Stoker's editor, too. The author titled his novel The Undead, but an, an editor changed to Dracula before the book's publication. So, yeah. Um, what do you guys think? I think Dracula just sounds more menacing and a much better title than Count Wammeyer. I think, uh, I think he made the right call there. Alright, guys. I am going to end it there. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, guys. Stay awesome.